I should have started, started walking up the aisle like this, coming to the podium. That would have been awesome. Dude, was, man, Love dude, it. I would have totally given you like 10 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're in Acts chapter 1, starting this uh, incredible study through the book of Acts. Um, we spent last week looking at those first few verses there that kind of set the stage and spent a lot of time creating the background of this, the Hellenistic culture that's in the background, um, preparing the way for the gospel to go forth. You can't underestimate Alexander the Great's uh, contribution to this unwillingly on his part, but nevertheless a contribution. Uh, if you know the story of Alexander the Great, I mean, this is a guy who accomplished so much in so little of a time. I think he only reigned for like 13 years, and uh, I think he died when he was in his 30s. But yet he conquered more land and, and infiltrated that land with Hellenistic culture uh, to the point that it, it, just, it just reverberated through the decades and the centuries that, that went beyond that. Um, and the reason that was kind of like paving the way for the gospel was one of the you know, walls that the gospel was going to find was the language barrier. And one of the things that Hellenistic culture did was it created this trade language of Koinonia Greek, which everyone spoke, even though like the Jews spoke Aramaic and the Romans spoke Latin, but Greek was the common language of the people. And so it actually created this avenue for the gospel to go forth where people could understand it in large quantities. The other part of that is the Roman Empire coming in and unseating the Greeks, but yet the Greek culture was still very prominent there. And then the Romans come in, and one of the things they did is they wanted to kind of buffer up the trade. And so they built roads throughout the Roman Empire. And not only did they build the roads, but they secured the majority of them so that these trade routes were very safe. So now as Jesus commissions his gospel, they have a common language they can take the gospel to the world with, and they have trade routes that are actually protected. Because if you go into the Old Testament, I think it's Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it kind of gives you a picture of what it was like in, in the old days of Palestine, where um, if you were traveling along the road and you didn't have somebody with you, you were a target, and you were going to lose whatever you had because you were going to get mugged on the way because they were just what they called roadside bandits. So these were people who were just waiting for someone who was weak to come along and they would overtake them, take their treasures. Well, one of the things Rome did was they wanted to make sure people bringing their treasures and trade from all over the world got there safely so that they could get the taxes off of all of those things. And therefore, they provided security for these roads. So the, thing, the reason I want to say that is because a lot of that's not in our gospel. It's not in the book of Acts. But if you were in the first century, you would have been putting these things together going, what a time for the gospel to go forward. Literally, it's like the stage is set for this massive introduction of this story to the ancient world. And there, if you would have gone just like 20, 30, 40, 50 years before this, it's not quite ready. But right here at this time was the perfect time for Jesus to to come, to die, to resurrect from the dead, to spend those 40 days in a Pentecost, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then the disciples to go out. And so there's a lot that's going on behind the story that's introducing this book of Acts. We find ourselves here looking at verses 6, 7, and 8 today. Look at verse 6, and this is where we're going to start. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So I want you to notice the word so there. We always have these little like reminders that we put ourselves. If you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what's that? Yeah, because it's telling you it's connecting back. The word so is the same thing. So you sew it in with whatever it is is before that. Okay, so this is just ways you remember. Whenever you see that, you want to make sure you want to go back and understand the, the context. Why? 
even though we study through a book verse by verse, the difficulty that we have is they're, they're removed by seven days. And if you miss a Sunday, you've, you've missed part of it. So we have to remind ourselves that all this is in context and it's meant to be read and understood together. So we have to do our due diligence and make sure that whenever it says so or therefore or something like that, that we remind ourselves where they're coming from. And this is really connecting back to verses four and five. Look at verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So again, the picture there is Jesus spent these 40 days with them. And then as he ascended into heaven, he said, I want you to go and I want you to wait. I want you to wait for the gift of the Father. Now, it's an interesting use because Jesus here uses the term Father, but the word Father is not used many more times throughout the book of Acts. Matter of fact, God is always referred to as God. Father's not used hardly at all. The interesting thing about Jesus is he's not referred to as a son anymore. Mostly, he's referred to as Lord. So God and Lord are the two terms that you see used almost throughout the entire book of Acts. Why is that? Why did we lose these very familial terms that were like kind of connected, thinking of God as father, thinking of Jesus as brother or son? Well, the reason is the context of which he's writing it. Remember, they're going out into the Roman Empire, and the Caesars had declared, many of them had declared themselves to be God, and they demanded to be called Lord. So whenever you paid penance to them in one way or another, paying your taxes or um, giving homage to them when you went and bought and sold in the market, you would have to declare whoever the Caesar was at that time, he is Lord, which is why many of the Christians in the early centuries there did not um, be, weren't able to buy and sell in the Roman marketplaces because they would refuse to do that. So as Luke uses these terms almost exclusively for God and for Jesus, it's almost like saying, no, it's not the Caesars that are God. There's one God. And, and you know what? The Caesars are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so that's why we see that overwhelming use of those terms there. And we see Jesus using the term Father here because obviously he's the one that introduced this idea that God is our Father and connected us in the way that we are being adopted into the family of God. So here there's an emphasis on the significance of waiting. That's always a good deal whenever you know that God is calling you to something and something significant. The first thing that you should do is wait. This harkens all the way back to creation, if you think about it. Um, God creates for seven days or creates for six days, and at the apex of that six day creates man. Then what does man do his first day in existence? He doesn't do anything. It's the Sabbath day. He sits and appreciates God's creation with God. So man, who we would all agree was probably created to tend the garden, because later on we see that God gave him control over that, and that was part of his work or his task. Yet the first day that he's there, he does none of that. He sits back and he appreciates what else did he do? He probably had conversations with God, getting to know God, God getting to know him. What do we call that? Prayer. Notice that the first thing that Jesus told his disciples to do when he left was, hey, you're going to take this gospel to the whole world, but before you do anything, number one, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem. Don't start any mission trips. And I want you to go to the upper room and I want you to wait. And what did they do? They were waiting and they were praying when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. They listened to Jesus. And even though they had this huge mission ahead of them, probably seeming overwhelmingly powerful and daunting task, Yet they went and they waited and they prayed. Always a good thing to do. Whenever you have something that you're facing in life and it seems overwhelming, wait and pray. 
And prayer is not this one-way conversation where we're telling God what we want. That waiting and praying happen uh, simultaneously. We are waiting to hear from God. Remember Habakkuk? He presented his case, and he said, I'm going to go up on the watchtower, and I'm going to wait to hear from God. Don't do anything until you know God has instructed you it's time to act. And that's exactly the information that Jesus gives to his disciples here before he ascended into heaven. And the last thing I want to note there is the idea of baptism. Now, baptism is one of the strong themes that you see throughout the book of Acts. Now, here you would almost think that maybe Jesus is saying, you know, John baptized with water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit almost dismissing this idea of like, you know, we're not going to baptize with water anymore. This baptism of the Holy Spirit replaces that, but it's not. And the reason you see that is because as you go through the rest of the book of Acts, they keep baptizing in water. So it's more of a picture that Jesus is referring to. So when John baptized, he immersed them underwater. They are covered. They are inundated with the water. And so the picture of John baptized you with water In the same way, you're going to be covered, inundated with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be overcome, overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what we see in the Pentecost narrative where the fire comes down over them and they are uncontrollably going out and speaking even in languages they don't understand or either they're speaking their own language and people hear them. I don't know exactly how that miracle unfolded, but it was a miracle nonetheless, a miracle where this this difficulty, this translation barrier didn't exist in that moment because the gospel clearly went forth. They were inundated, overwhelmed, covered with the Holy Spirit. And so this is something you're going to see that, that uh, Luke does a great job of connecting these stories together with these themes. Now, as we come into our passage today in verse 6, it's almost like, how many of y'all had kids and you went on your first trip and you get out of the driveway, go down the road a little ways, and the first question they ask you is, yes, are we there yet? It's almost exactly what the disciples are asking Jesus. If you think about this long journey that they've been on, they have been expecting a Messiah to come for a long time. Many of them have even given up on it. And then when Jesus came on the scene and he demonstrated these miraculous powers, this ability to make food where there was no food, to heal those who other people can't heal, even lepers were being healed. They were thinking, this is the Messiah. Now, our idea was their Messiah was supposed to come and free them, right? Free them from their enemies. Well, they were inundated by Rome right now. Rome was everywhere and was occupying their land. So they were looking for a Messiah to come. Now, Jesus kept telling them over and over again, that's not the kind of Messiah that I am. That's not what I've come to do. I've come to fight a bigger enemy, a more long-lasting enemy, and a more, worse enemy to you than Rome has ever been. And that is sin, death, and hell. That's what I've come to defeat for you. They didn't get that, though, because their idea of a Jewish Messiah was one who would free and restore the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back to the people of Israel. And so they always were expecting that, even though Jesus was teaching them to think a different way. And so it seems like this roller coaster ride that they've been on, when they come to this point of saying, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, they're almost like saying, are we there yet? Is this one that's going to happen? Is it, all these things that we've been waiting, is, is it going to happen now? Is that what's next? And it's amazing because I think the apostles are looking at it from the wrong direction. They keep asking the same question. Maybe they're even asking the wrong question. I'm not sure. But to get into the story, I want you to remember how this whole thing started. 
I want you to think again about that Jewish mindset of the revolution, what they really thought the Messiah was coming to do. You see, this isn't just about belief because they did believe. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was the rightful king, that he was the one that was promised that was going to be a descendant of David who would sit on the throne forever. They believed this firmly. They believed that Jesus had what it takes to be the king. Now, in the back of their minds is probably this idea even of King David. Do you remember when King David was anointed to be king? It was a long time before he actually took the kingship. Why? Because Saul was still there, and Saul wasn't going to give up his kingship. And so Saul kept you know, ruling and reigning, and he tried to kill David, and David had many opportunities to kill Saul, and David had the rightful heir to the throne because he was chosen by God, anointed by Samuel to be the next king, but he would never raise his hand against God's anointed. And so there was this period of waiting. David was waiting. He even had his army with him, his men that were very close to him that would fight to the death for him. And they're running around just waiting for God to unveil the time when he would rule as king. And so the disciples probably thought of themselves as David's men. You know, we're walking around with Jesus out in the wilderness and we're waiting for our time, waiting for uh, God to give us the position in this kingdom that we are promised, even through the covenant relationship that they had with God. So this is probably the way that they viewed themselves. Even James and John, you remember one time in the Gospels where their mom goes to Jesus and says, oh, when, whenever you establish your kingdom, can one of my sons sit on the right and one sit on the left? And this caused this whole like, argument with the disciples because they were like, how dare you send your mom up there? And you know I deserve that better than you. I've been here longer. I've done more, whatever it is. And they start this whole argument, and Jesus reminds them that's the way the Gentiles operate. The Gentiles want these famous titles. The Gentiles want to lord it over the people, but with you, it should not be so. If you want to be great, become a servant. And that's where he established in the rules of the kingdom. And so when they were thinking about the restoration of the land, you know, it, it's really not that hard for us to understand why the disciples were thinking this way. Because if you think about Jesus' ministry, think about the fact that he was born in Bethlehem and in his entire ministry, entire ministry. He never traveled more than 100 miles away from where he was born. And yet somehow he's going to be the king over all the kingdoms of the earth. So, you know, for them to be thinking so narrowly about Israel and when will the land be restored to Israel, it's not that far-fetched because Jesus went around to all these different places. As a matter of fact, when you look at the areas that are mentioned here in the book of Acts, what is it? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Those are the three that he mentions before he talks about the end of the earth, right? And all three of those are in the lands that were promised to Abraham. So, even in his establishment of saying, you're going to be my witnesses, it's mostly in the covenant land that was promised to Abraham. So for them to think this way is really not that far-fetched. And what about all this talk about the end of the earth? So how is this kingdom going to go to the end of the earth? Well, they're probably thinking about this in relationship to the Roman Empire. You know, the Roman empires were much like the Persians and the Medes. When they went and conquered a land, they would conquer it, they would establish their reign over it, but then they would let people carry on as normal. Now, they would tax them like crazy, but they would let them continue on in their businesses. They would let them continue on their religious practices. They didn't care what they did as long as they didn't cause any problems and they paid their taxes. And so that's the way Rome kept growing was they would conquer these lands and then let the people be. 
And so this is really where Pax Romana comes in, where there was the, the peace of Rome. It was a fake kind of peace, but no, nevertheless, they were free from strife for a little while because Rome had conquered so much land, and people were beginning to become comfortable and settle in with this. Now, beyond this, these were probably all the things that were going through their minds as they talked about this phrase, restoring the kingdom to Israel. Now, notice it doesn't say restoring the kingdom of Israel. It says restoring the kingdom to Israel. Okay, and I think that's an important distinction because they're not just talking about the nation of Israel. They're talking about the kingdom of God flowing out of Israel. Okay, because that's the promise. If you go back even to the prophets of the Old Testament, that was the promise that the nations would benefit and be blessed by God's reigning through. Israel. And so before we criticize these guys too much, we have to remember all of these things that were going through their head. We have to remember the roller coaster ride that they've been on. I mean, think about the fact that they were nobodies, and this Messiah comes along who's demonstrating all these powerful abilities, and he calls them, these nobodies, to be somebody, and they walk with him, and now all of a sudden they're somebody, and they're like, this is the Messiah, and then they're like, well, I mean, he's going to demonstrate. And then every opportunity Jesus has, he never really confronts the Romans. He never really overthrows. He, he does this great display of he's smarter than them, he's more powerful than them, but why does he not overthrow them? And then they have that great confrontation in the Garden of Gethsemane where here comes the, 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 the guards from the temple and they rest Jesus and take him in. They're like, this is the conflict. This is when it's going to happen. And then Jesus ends up being crucified. And all of a sudden, everything that they hoped for, everything they thought the story was going for, ends up coming crashing down all around them. Depressed, dejected, disillusioned. That's where they were. And then three days later, they go to look for this dead Messiah, and he's alive. And not only is he alive, he appears to them. And not only does he appear to them once, he stays with them, walks with them for 40 days. Surely they're thinking, yes, maybe we were right about this. He is the Messiah. He is going to establish his kingship. And then after 40 days, he goes, guys, I'm leaving, and I need to leave so that I can send to you another one. And like, Wait a minute, what are you talking about? Like, you were here, and then you're gone, and now you're here again, and now you're leaving again? I, we, we don't get this. We don't understand this. Is this now the time for the kingdom? Or are you ever going to restore what was promised in the Old Testament? What does that look like? What should we expect? All this was the story of the gospel. You think about it, it real culminated with the crucifixion, which didn't seem like a victory to them at all. But the way the book of Acts paints it is that it actually was the victory. And then they, that, that led to the resurrection where they were going like, what? Maybe we were right from the beginning. And the resurrection, if you think about it, leads to the ascension. And the ascension is Jesus taking the throne in heaven. So were they wrong or were they right to have this expectation that they voice here in this passage? I'm going to be honest with you. This is where I got it wrong for so long. Um, until I really studied these verses more closely, I used to think that they were, Jesus was really criticizing them for thinking about the physical more than the spiritual. That he was criticizing them for thinking very temporal and, and landish instead of thinking, you know, kingdom of God being more of this spiritual kingdom or this eternal kingdom. But is this really true? And I think the key of understanding this is to look at verse 7. And notice in verse 7 that he never criticizes them for asking this, nor does he counter anything that they say. Listen, he said to them, 
It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, as I've read that in the past, my assumption was Jesus is saying, no, no, your timing is way off. No, there's still a whole lot of things that have to happen before what you're talking about ever comes to fruition. But after studying this and really looking at it critically, I don't think that Jesus is saying no. Matter of fact, if you go back to the Gospels, this is actually what Jesus has been teaching them to think. You remember when they asked, Lord, teach us to pray, and he gave them the model prayer? Think about the words of that prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So so this idea that Jesus taught them was somehow heaven was going to inundate earth. It's not about us all going up to heaven. It was about heaven coming to earth and inundating us and overwhelming us. So is Jesus really saying no? Or is this one of those points in scripture where we, we call it the already not yet? What Jesus is saying to them is, actually, I'm already reigning. I'm not yet reigning in the fullest capacity that you're thinking in your mind, but I'm already reigning. I'm already the conquering king. I'm already ascended to the throne. I already oversee all the kingdoms of the earth, but I'm going to send you out as my witnesses to be my heralds to the rest of the world that this, in fact, has already happened. Has it happened to its fullest extent? No. It's kind of like salvation. We know that we are saved in Christ and that our sins have been forgiven, and yet we still struggle with sin. But we know one day we will be free from sin and the temptation of sin and everything when we see him face to face. Is it already true that we are forgiven? Yes. Is it being experienced to its fullest capacity? Not yet. And so I think a lot of what the disciples are trying to gauge here is not that they got it wrong, but when are these things going to happen? And notice Jesus didn't say, those things aren't going to happen the way you think they are. All he said was, God's timetable is a little bit different than yours. Did you notice that? So think about this for a moment. Jesus isn't really saying no here, I don't think. Is he trying to get them to let go of the physical and to embrace the spiritual? I don't think so, not by his words there. I don't think that that's what he's doing at all. Matter of fact, I think verse 8 begins the clarification. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my, let's say that next word together, witnesses. Now that becomes a pivotal word throughout the book of Acts from this point forward. You will be my witnesses. And notice the places in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the resurrection and the ascension are amazing events. And these amazing events, I think Jesus is saying here, are also metaphors of what has actually transpired, what has happened. The resurrection is a picture of victory, and the ascension is a, is a picture of Jesus taking the throne. Matter of fact, a little bit later in the book of Acts, Stephen is being stoned to death. And in his moments right before he dies, he says, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. Really? Where, where is that at? The throne room. That's where God is. So Jesus is somehow sitting on the throne in heaven. He is overseeing. He is ruling and reigning already. He's not waiting to rule and reign. He's already there. He's already on a throne. 
So the picture there is, I want you to, again, think about these ancient civilizations. Whenever Rome defeated, like they come in, they defeat the Greeks, what happens is they first have to have a victory where they defeat their enemies, and then they establish their throne. What's the very next thing all of these ancient civilizations did? Once they established who was on the throne, they sent out heralds into the land to declare, this is the person who's in control now. This is the person who's ruling and reigning. This is the person who you're under their dominion now. And they would go and proclaim that throughout, even if it was just a change of leadership. Let's say one Caesar dies and another one takes the position. They would immediately send out heralds to say, this is the person who's in control now. This is the person who's sitting on the throne. This is the person who is ruling and reigning. And so again, this point of us being witnesses of the disciples and and, and ultimately us in our day and time, we are to be witnesses for Christ. This is a recurring theme a recurring message throughout the book of Acts. The word occurs no less than 39 times in the book of Acts. I'm going to give you a few examples. Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all, say it with me, witnesses. Acts 3.15, and you, call, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts 10.39, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Acts 22, verse 15, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So this idea of witnesses is not just the beginning part of this, but it's the whole theme of the book of Acts, that they are going to be witnesses of what they saw and what they heard, and they are going to herald to the rest of the world, Jesus Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave. He is the victor, and we saw him ascend into heaven and take the throne of God. He rules, and he reigns, and we're here to proclaim that to you. The enemy defeated, the king enthroned, and announcements to the far reaches of the kingdom. So in effect, Jesus' answer is actually yes. Yes, this is a time that the kingdom is going to come. Now, what, all that you're thinking in your mind and God's timetable, you can't get those two things confused because ultimately you're not going to understand God's timetable. But the truth is, yes, the kingdom has been established. Yes, it is going to flow from Israel. Okay, why? Because Jesus says from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. So there's still this already not yet tension, but at the same time, they're not going out to proclaim what's going to happen in the future. Think about that for a moment. We think about the book of Revelation as kind of predicting some of the things that will happen towards the end of time, but the disciples didn't go out and say that. The disciples proclaimed what had already happened, not what was going to happen. And so again, we have to keep this in mind because this is what they are commissioned to go out and to speak. Look again at verses 7 and 8. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I want you to remember that word, authority. But you will receive power. Remember that word, power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So who has authority here? Look at it again. I told you to like memorize that, right? Who has the authority? God. God has the authority. The Father in heaven, he's the one who has authority. What do the apostles receive? Yeah, get it. They don't receive authority. 
they receive power. Why? I think that's key because the authority rests with God. The authority rests with the reigning king, the one who oversees. They are the ones who will be witnesses, and the authority is granting power to them to enable them to do what he's commissioned them to do. So by the conclusion of this book, Luke is going to demonstrate that indeed the gospel heralds did go forth. They did start in Jerusalem. They did spill over into the Judean hill country. They did even make it to the Samaritans. And ultimately, they took this gospel all the way to the Gentiles from every land and every ancient world. I want to point out one last thing that I think is very key here in verse 8. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and, look at the next part, how it's worded different, to the, what does it say? I want you to read it with me. Did you notice it does not say ends of the earth? It says, to the end of the earth. Now, what I'm proposing here is this is possibly where Jesus is changing from territory to time. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea. You're going to be my witnesses in Samaria. You're going to be my witnesses until the earth is no more. What do we have when we have the book of Revelation that says there's a day coming when heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away? It talks about the fact that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, right? So maybe what Jesus is saying here is, yes, it's going to be restored to Israel, and you're going to be my witnesses that this, in fact, has already happened, and that I am ruling and reigning, and I hold the hearts of kings over kingdoms in my hands, and I'm sovereign over every king and over every nation. Didn't we see that in Habakkuk? I mean, in our study of Habakkuk, that's what he struggled with. He's like, Lord, are you going to let your people just live in this un- unfaithfulness to the covenant? And God's like, oh, no, you- you'll love this story. I'm raising up the Babylonians right now to come in and to judge those in the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and Habakkuk's like, what? You're-, you're raising up the Babylonians? He was like, yeah, I am. And they're going to come in and they're going to judge. And you know what? Then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to judge the Babylonians for their wickedness. What do we have in in Egypt but God controlling the heart of Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the face of the earth at that time, and yet God held his heart in his hands to make him do exactly what he wanted him to do. God is sovereign over all things. And what was demonstrated in the gospel is that your sins have been atoned for. God had victory over death, hell, and the grave. And after he uh, attained that victory, he ascended into heaven and he took his rightful place on the throne of God. And when he ascended into heaven and took his throne, he immediately sent out his witnesses to proclaim the herald to all of those people, you can be set free under this kingdom. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore in this kingdom. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God, and he reigns over all humanity, and he will forgive you of your sins if you will confess your sins. He will accept you if you will humbly approach him, and what happens is that 
gospel message has reverberated from generation to generation to generation, 2,000 years removed now, and many of you have walked foreign souls, and you have proclaimed the gospel to people who haven't heard. You've walked to people across the street from you, and you've proclaimed it to your neighbors. Jesus is Lord. He is reigning on high. And guess what? That message will be proclaimed until the end of the earth. And when he establishes probably what the disciples are thinking about, this physical reign, and he demonstrates that he is the king of the universe. We have a job to do, my friends. We have a job to do, and that job is to herald our king. We have to keep preaching this message. He is not coming to conquer. He already did that. He's coming to reign. And I want you to prepare your hearts and your minds and your souls for him to reign over you. That's the message that we have. That's the message that's been given to us, that's been passed down from generation to generation, and we are going to inundate the globe with that message till every person has had an opportunity to hear that they can be set free from the greatest enemy that has ever faced humanity. That is sin, death, and hell. And you can be free from that. You can know eternal life. You can be forgiven and have peace in your heart. You can live in that reigning peace from the Prince of Peace. This is the message that we've been given. But guess what? That is a daunting task. That's a daunting task to tell. Especially, I mean, it seems like very overwhelming to us, right? But think about these 12 guys, 11 now at this point. They're down one, okay? They're down one and they all speak the same language, and somehow we're going to go beyond Israel? We're, we're going to keep going with this message? Yeah, you are. I don't know that we can do that. Mm, you can't. That's why the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. And you will receive power. You won't receive authority. You're not going to have authority over the kingdoms of the world. You're not going to have authority in these different kingdoms. Though They'll still rule and reign in their own way. I have authority over them. I'm not sending you out with authority. I'm sending you out with power. And that power will be demonstrating that my authority is greater than their authority. Oh, yes, they will try and cage you up, and I will open the gates and let you free. They will try and shut you up by killing you, and the message will catch like wildfire and spread even further in their kingdoms. They will try and stop you, but the power that I'm going to give you will not enable them to stop anything. As a matter of fact, the more they try, the further it's going to go. Why? Because I rule and I reign. And this is the message that I'm giving my witnesses to take into all the world. We are the ones who have been entrusted with this great message. Isn't that powerful? It's overwhelming at the same time. And the question I have to ask myself is, am I being a good steward with the message that's been given to me? A message that's made it thousands of years and changed so many lives and demonstrated its authenticity over and over again. And yet, am I motivated? Am I being a good steward to continue what has been handed down to me? I hope that you can pray about that as well. I want to see a demonstration of the Holy Spirit in my own life. I hope that you do too. I want to see a power that comes from on high, not can be explained by human power. I want to see God move fresh and anew among his people with this vision that we are going to be the witnesses for this king and his rule and his reign until the end of the earth. Amen? Let's pray.
God, thank you for a word that is just a reminder of how powerful you are and how freeing your death and resurrection was for us, how the message just can overwhelm hearts and minds to the point of setting us free, prisoners of sin, prisoners to death. And yet, all of those things, you've allowed us to escape by your power, by your resurrection, by your righteousness applied to us in our faith and trust in you. Holy Spirit, we know that you are the one who convicts hearts. We know that you are the one that transforms lives. And we thank you for being the comforter that Jesus sent to us. And so you, we pray that you would rule and reign in our own hearts and our own minds, that you would empower us to do the things that you have called us to do. Lord, help us to quit leading bland, visionless lives. And Lord, help us to grab a hold of this incredible picture of the potential of a person who is all in and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in their life, allowing Jesus to rule and reign in their heart, and allowing ourselves to be used for a greater cause and a more lasting kingdom than anything we could ever build ourselves. Lord, may you receive the honor and the glory that is due to you in all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would y'all stand and sing this with